So uh, we do this thing with Community Partners in Caring in, in Santa Maria, and they are a group that helps some elderly people around town. And what we do with them is, well, they do a lot of stuff for elderly people. Like, they take them out grocery shopping to doctor's appointments. What we do is, because you guys are younger, you're like manual labor. And so they're, they're in mobile homes or in, in some houses, and everything is overgrown. And so what we do is we go in, and we clear a lot of brush for the people uh, who are in there so they can get in. Sometimes there's some steps in their houses that are broken down, and so we rebuild those steps and put them together and, and stuff like that. Uh, so on Saturday, Community Partners and Caring had a uh, thank you luncheon, and my mom went to it for us. She was the only one of us that went. Um, and they gave us this award because uh, not only have apparently been doing this for five years now, but they gave us their faith in, it's, 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 I can never, which way you hold these things? It's like, <laughs> if you got a mirror, it goes either way. So anyway, uh, their faith in action reward, which it, award, which is, which is kind of cool. So there you go. And I know you guys are going, what in the world is community partners and caring? Exactly. Because <laughs> sometimes there's just three of us out there cleaning up an entire house. What's wrong with you? So if you want to be involved in Community Partners in Caring, uh, sign up at the Welcome Center in the back and just say Community Partners in Caring. And usually it's like once every two months or something we'll, we'll work on somebody's house. So we know who you are and that you want to help. And it's not just like Jared and his two thumbs out there, you know, working on somebody's house. Because element, faith in action, woo! What? Okay, yeah. All right, uh, a week from Friday, we are doing our next Connect party. So if you are new or newer to Element, feel like you haven't connected well, uh, 7 p.m., uh, you're going to come, you're going to show up, you're going to meet some of the leadership, some other new people, and we're going to fill you full with desserts and sugar. So if you have kids, you can go home and crash and cry and be a total pain in the rear end, just like they are after they eat too much sugar. You can get, this is what you're like. It'll be awesome. We're just here to help you be better parents. You're welcome. <laughs> So anyway, uh, 7 o'clock, sign up at the Welcome Center in the back. We will email you directions on where it is. Uh, it's, at the, it's at the Pettit's house this time, and I haven't been there since they've redone all their stuff in their house, so we can all judge it together. <laughs> It'll be awesome. It'll be awesome. All right, welcome to Element. My name is Aaron. Uh, if you are new, I'm one of the pastors here. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. Uh, they have notes and questions all in them. But if you have a smartphone, don't shut it off. You can download an app. The app is called Uversion. Click on Live in that. It will bring us up by GPS in your smartphone. If you don't have GPS in your smartphone, type in 93454-5855, and it will come up as that. And you will get the sermon notes and the verses and the questions and all that goes along with this morning. Why don't you stand with me for reading God's Word? We will get started. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20, and it says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we, as your people, would be those who live in humility, who understand the grace and goodness and kindness of a holy God who has come to save and rescue and redeem his people. Father, that we would never be prideful because of what you have done, that we'd always be a humble people who stand amazed of who you are. Amen. Have a seat. Right, so I have a Bible. You can open to Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. We are in an expository series, just started it on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is one of the longest teaching narratives ever recorded by Jesus in the Scriptures. And as I, when I was writing this, I didn't even know how long it was going to be. Uh, we're going to go all the way up to Christmas. Merry Christmas. There you go. So we'll be done about then. That'll be your Christmas present. Now, Matthew 5, 4 says this, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
And I know what you're thinking. As soon as we start that, in your mind you're going, this is going to be the most depressing sermon I've ever heard at Element. Uh, not, not so much, although I am going to beat you up a bit. There's a lot of content and stuff that goes on in the background of what Jesus is saying here. This whole idea of blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Sometimes when we read this verse, we take it to places that Jesus would never take it. We think about hurt and loss and pain and God comforting us in the midst of it. Now, there's lots of verses in the scriptures that actually deal with that, although Matthew 5, 4 is not one of them. It is a reality that Jesus will wipe all the tears from our eyes. Uh, there's an old saying that's called whistling past the graveyard, where death is so close or pain is so close that we do is we just kind of whistle past the graveyard. We don't look at it. I'm not a good whistler, by the way. I would never make the Andy Griffith show tryout. <laughs> Woo, go people over 40. There you go, see? see. <laughs> It's my shout-out right there. So, you know, it's a, I can't whistle, but, you know, you whistle past the graveyard because you're not trying to, to look at it. And, and so what happens is when we look at these verses, we think, well, that's got to deal with my own personal pain. Well, not necessarily. But what I want to do this morning is I want to spend a little bit of time actually dealing with that. I'll give you about five minutes on how God comforts us in our pain, and then we'll deal with the verse actually deals with. In the American way of death, Jessica Mitford walks through this whole issue, and she says that even at funerals, we don't really deal with death. We say things like, oh, didn't they look so nice in the casket, as we comment on the makeup job, not actually uh, the, the death that's involved in that. Now, I actually heard someone on Matthew 5, 4 spend over half an hour talking about how a human being can have hope in God in the face of suffering and silence. And the answer is yes, but again, Matthew 5, 4 isn't about that. If you want to look about suffering and silence, the best place to look is the book of Job. Open your Bibles to the book of Job. Go to Job chapter 2. And this is the idea in Job. It starts off and Job just gets hit over the head after time after time after time. He loses his children. He loses his livelihood. He loses his homes. And at the end of chapter 1, he still falls down in worship of God. And he says, and he says, you know, God can take, God can take away. I'm going to bless the name of the Lord. It's a beautiful thing. But then chapter 2 hits and all of a sudden Job's person becomes afflicted and he is hurt. And at the, in the middle of Job chapter 2, he stops really falling down in worship of God and he goes to the city dump. And he grabs some shards of pottery, and he's scraping boils off of his skin. And in Job chapter 2, verse 9, his wife looks at him in the middle of this, and his wife says, curse God and die. That's not very encouraging. She must not have read Matthew 5, 4. I mean, come on, really, what's up with that? But you got to understand, his wife has lost everything as well. She has lost her children. She's lost her livelihood, her homes. And now she has a husband that she's looking at, and she is thinking, I'm going to have to watch this guy die. And when her husband is gone, she's going to be destitute. She's going to have nothing. And so she's thinking all of these things. She's starting to work through her loss, and she's starting to mourn. Job responds to her in Job chapter 2, verse 10, and he says, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? Now, the word evil there is the word raw, and that actually it translates as evil. But it can also be bad, disagreeable, those kind of things. And Job doesn't actually curse God at that point, but I think he doesn't understand what God's doing right now either. Because the writer goes on, and the writer says, In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, Job chapter 1, Job doesn't really sin at all. He bows down in worship of God no matter what happens. And now it says that Job didn't sin in what he said. So his heart's starting to betray him. And as you see in the book of Job, he's going to actually start lashing out a little bit, like we do when we're hurt. We want to lash out. We think we're vindicated to do so. 
were not vindicated to do so. Now, like any man, Job has some friends. His friends meet to sympathize with Job, to comfort Job. And Job, at one point, was famous in his life for all of his wealth and all of his greatness. And now he's becoming very well known for all of his suffering. And when his friends show up, in Hebrew, it uses this word called nud. Nud is this word. It's like, a, uh, it's like your shell shock. Something really bang happens or you wreck your car and you get out and someone's just sitting there and they're, they're just shaking. That, that's nud. You're just shaking like that. So his friends show up and they sit with him and they nud with him. In Job chapter 2, verse 13, it says, And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Now imagine that. You just sit with someone in silence. That powerful act actually becomes part of later Jewish life. To this day, Jews will still talk about what, are, what is called sitting Shiva or sitting sevens. Well, friends will come over and mourn for the period of a week. A great example of this is the Apostle Paul in Romans twelve fifteen. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Some translations will say mourn with those who mourn. So when the seven-day period is up, Job starts to talk again, and he doesn't say the words of Job chapter 1. You know, God gives, God takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. He doesn't even speak the words of Job chapter 2. It would have been a short book if he did. Uh, Job chapter 3 verse 1 says, After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. See, now it's all coming on his head. Now he doesn't know what to do, so he curses the day of his birth. In verse 8, he says, Let those curse it who curse the day. The NIV will translate that as, May those who curse days curse that day. Why did God even allow me to be born? My loss, my pain, my mourning, it is more than I can handle. Why isn't God just kill me? And what you see throughout the book of Job is that Job starts to get very angry at God. I want to stand before God. I want to ask him questions. I want to know why. Why does he let me go through this? Why doesn't he give me what I want? Why, why, why? And in the end of the book of Job, God actually shows up, which is always a scary prospect. And you're like, I want you to show up and answer me. And then God's all, boom. It's like, I was kidding. Sorry, you know. You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. So, so God shows up to Job. And what God does is he starts to ask Job a series of questions. He never answers Job as to why. What he does is he starts to show Job all of his extravagant goodness, how wonderful he is by this series of questions. And really, by the end of it, the question to Job becomes, Job, do you think I'm worth it? Because I am totally worth it. And you and I as believers, when we see all that Jesus has done, is Jesus worth it? You know, maybe if you never get all of your whys answered, maybe if nothing ever comes together, is Jesus still enough? That is how we get comfort in the midst of our loss and our pain. But again, that is not what Matthew 5, 4 is talking about. Last week when we talked about being poor in spirit, I tried to get you to see how different Jesus would have understood that phrase as to how we understand it. We think, how do I become poor in spirit so I can have the kingdom? How do I make the kingdom mine? And I showed you poor in spirit is not something that anybody seeks to attain. When people come to the verse about mourning, they say, well, how do I mourn correctly so God will comfort me? And many people think that's what it's about. I'll give you, you know, God, just give me a little bit. Make me feel a little bit better. It is a little bit about that, but it's worse than you could ever imagine because this is about our condition as a human race, the sin that so envelops us. It is worse than we could ever imagine. You are poor in spirit, and you, when you realize that, we start to mourn over that. Now, today in our culture, what kind of things do we mourn over? They changed my favorite radio station from rock and roll to some pop crazy hybrid. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yes, thank you. It's like, what are you doing? Even worse, they made a country or something. But you know, <laughs> how about they take your favorite TV show and cancel it after that cliffhanger during the summer? You're like, curse you, NBC. <laughs> Just to pick one out of the air. 
like that. I, we mourn when someone loses a job, a pet, a football game. <laughs> I was laughing all last night. We also mourn when someone dies in that. But is that what Jesus is talking about? Is Jesus taking this? Is he making this all about us? Well, yes and no, because the mourning here has to do with something deeper. It goes to Matthew 5, 3, the kingdom of God. It goes to what the heart of the gospel is. And if I said to you, what is the gospel? A lot of people are like, I don't know. It's like deer in the headlights. You know, I'm a Christian. What's the gospel? Uh, Jesus. You know, it's that. This is, this is the gospel. You and I are rebels. We have rebelled against a good and holy God. We have all sought to go our own way and do our own thing. This has separated us from God. We call this sin. And yet, we, there's no way we could bridge that gap to go back in relationship with God. And so what Jesus does is Jesus comes in the form of a man and he dies for that sin to reconcile you and I to God. God is on a rescue mission for his people to seek and to save us. And we surrender our lives to him. That is the heart of the gospel. And as a, thank you. And as a Christian, why did Jesus die? For our sins. For our sins. This verse is about the understanding of the depth of our depravity and the goodness of a God in saving us. We are poor in spirit. And when we realize that, we begin to mourn, and God will bring comfort on the backside of that. See, the Jews had this holiday. They tried to remember this and bring this back around, but they lost it. This holiday was called Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur meant Day of Atonement. Yom is Day, Kippur is this idea of atonement. It's from a root that meant to cover or conceal. That for you to go stand before a good and holy God, your sin had to be covered. So they had all of these sacrifices they would do, and the blood would cover your sin so you could stand before a good and holy God. So atonement was the idea of covering that sin so you could approach God again. The fullness of atonement is lost in a lot of Jews. Today, though, for them, it's all about what you do on Yom Kippur. It's a day to set aside to afflict the soul where you atone for your sins yourself. Who's atoning for your sins? You. You can never atone for your own sins. You can't do that. Jesus does that. And so true mourning isn't so much over what we have done to ourselves. It's what we've done to God, what our sin has done to him. All that was done in the Old Testament is always foreshadowing, pointing to who Jesus was when he came. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, uh, the, the writer there says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats and even your own to take away sins. That's, that's the idea behind it. Now, Ezekiel 16:63 in the Old Testament, God also promises, then when I make atonement for you, you can't do it. He says, when I make atonement for you, for all you have done, you will remember and be ashamed. And this goes to the idea of mourning. And never again open your mouth because of your humiliation, declares the sovereign Lord. This is the idea of atonement, that those who believe, we mourn and we have a hard time opening our mouths to ever try and justify ourselves because God is the one who, through Jesus, has to wash away our sin. It starts like this. Our first parents, beginning of humanity, believed they knew better than God how to live lives. And so they rebelled against Him, just like you and I do every single day. Don't say you don't. We, we all do it. And since that time, it is in our nature to be evil. I mean, you got kids, two years old, what's their favorite words? And? And no one mind. There you go. No one mind. Hit three, it's like, gimme. You know, no mind and gimme. That, that, that's That's... 
all it is. I, you think, well, not my kids. Look, okay, Mary may have given birth to the Son of God, but you didn't, okay? <laughs> all right? All right? Your, your kid is not that awesome, no matter how cool you think they are. Now, And now today, we all just want to be God. We want to say what is right and what is wrong. We want to pick the teams of who is in and who is out. We want to say what sin is and what sin is not. We want to rule over creation, and if we can't, we want to at least rule over our own little lives without some God butting in, judging our actions and our hearts, and telling us what to do. It is a war of the gods. And the question really becomes, when God invades your space, do you honor Him or do you struggle in anger against Him? It is like, I wanted to be friends with you. And you constantly just keep assaulting me. That's not friendship. That's what our sin does to a good and holy and righteous God. And there are churches today who refuse to talk about the word sin because people don't like to talk about sin. And I always think, good, you shouldn't like it. You should be like, sin, that's horrible. Yes, it's horrible. I don't like when you talk about it. Well, don't do it. Stop it. I mean, sin is horrible. I mean, every other religion on this planet tells you that you are the solution. I was talking to a Hindu kid a couple months ago, and he's like, oh, I just got to get it right. Maybe I'll just reincarnate, and I'll do it over and get it back. I'm like, dude, you are a crooked stick, and you're making crooked lines. You can't draw straight lines. You are not the hope. We are all the desecration, every single one of us. For some reason, I think the world is broken, and we're not. Well, I'll just pull myself up in my bootstraps. You don't have boots. You don't have them. We have all sinned against God. God is awesome. He is incredible. And He should be feared because that's the beginning of wisdom. Respecting the only good and true and holy God. In America, we are afraid of public speaking and poverty and failure when we should be fearful of God and His holiness. Practically speaking, what does this look like? It is any man who drinks to excess, sleeps with a woman not his wife, sleeps with a woman they're not married to, looks at a picture of a naked lady wishing to have sex with them, treats someone with judgment and contempt. They are all rebels fighting against God's will for human history, declaring war on God because we all want to be God. And if you or I say, well, I don't do that, I'm better than that. Well, great, you're prideful just like Satan. Lucky you. Way to go. The issue is not morality. The issue is Jesus. You know, any woman who is a gossip, a flirt, a slut, a nag, a coveter, who is obsessed with her own social appearance rather than God's, they are all rebels. Rebels fighting against God's will for human history, declaring just war on God as a lawbreaker. See, there is a God that is true and holy and right and good. Then there's the one we want to make up in our own little minds. And he's a little bit smaller than us. So when we want to take him on, we can win. There is not peace for those who are enemies of God. They are not comforted because there is no mourning over sin. And sin isn't just what we do. It is who we are. This is why we need God to start over with us, renew us. And that starts with judgment for our sins at the cross of Jesus. We cannot boast, we cannot brag because we didn't deserve it. We were all poor in spirit. We're all it's, it's Jesus and the rest of us. There's no white hats and black hats. It's just Jesus and all of us. For some reason, we all believe that God owes us grace. God owes us nothing but judgment. We rob Him of His glory. We mock His goodness. We abuse His creation and other people. We even take the body that He gave us to worship Him in, and we defile it. The only thing left is repentance or judgment. And you can go to all the other religions and isms and philosophers, from like Kant to Hegel to Kierkegaard to Bentham to Mills to Leotard to Rorty to Derrida to Foucault, and none of them, none of them tells you they can take away your sin and connect you to God. None of them says what Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight: Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. None of them. Now, does God love you? Yes. Yes. It is shocking. 
It is shocking that God loves us. But if I started talking about this mushy God who loves you, you would say, of course God loves me. I'm lovable. I, you know, I've got a great personality. He loves me. You know, we in America, we love the lovely. But the scripture tells you at the Sermon on the Mount in the beginning that God loves those who are not lovely. God loves the poor in spirit. It is why I know mankind didn't make up and invent this God, because he would never be this holy and yet this good. And a lot of churches run to either one side or the other. You know, oh, God's holy. He's going to crush you. He hates you. He wants to punch you in the face all day long. That's God, right? And the other side's like, oh, no, no. God's like a hippie that hangs out in the airport and hands out flowers. That's God. <laughs> God is holy and he is good. Holy and good. Hand and hand coming together. See, we didn't invent this because we can't even conceive of a God who is this good and this holy. God loves you passionately. And until we realize our condition, it's almost meaningless because you are worse than you can ever imagine. You are poor in spirit. And that brings mourning because of where we've been and what we've done. And God gives us his kingdom and his comfort. We even try to change how dire this is. Prior to 1927, the Book of Common Prayer had this prayer. It says this, We acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness, which we from time to time most grievously have committed by thought, word, and deed against thy divine majesty, provoking most justly thy wrath and indignation against us. We do earnestly repent and are heartily sorry for these our misdoings. The remembrance of them is grievous unto us. The burden of them is intolerable. In 1970, they updated that prayer. And this is now what it says. We confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry sorry, and humbly repent. Now, it's still true. But do you see the complete difference in those two things? I mean, I think the difference is striking. When we don't understand our predicament, I don't think we understand God's love. You see, God's love is not a junior high love. It's not all awkward and weird, and he's texting you at odd times going, hey, what's up? You know, That's not God's love. God's love is action-oriented. It is emotional, but it acts. My favorite verse in the scriptures, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, while we were declaring war on God, while we were running away, while we were still giving him the finger, Christ died for us. That's the heart of the gospel. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. God made us. We walk away. We try to become our own God. And God still says, I love you. I'm going to pursue you. He stoops in humility in the person of Christ to come to us. The creator of the universe comes into human history as Jesus. We run. God pursues. God's love is un. Equal, it is unyielding. Jesus was humble and he was accessible, and yet we held on to our sin because we still love it today more than we love him. And so Jesus is beaten, he is spat upon by the people he made. He is nailed to a Roman cross. The crowd yells, Crucify him. And as he is dying naked near death, in Luke 23 34, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Seriously? Father, forgive them. If you or I were there, I know I would. If I was on that, and I wouldn't pray, Father, I'd be like, God, smite them all. (laughs) I would. And I would come off that cross, and I would show everybody my glory, and they would all be sorry. They would, every single one of them. Every single one of them. But Jesus doesn't. He dies for our sins. He hangs on that cross. John 19, 30, Jesus says, it is finished. The word, it is finished, means paid in full. Paid in full. The death Jesus dies, he dies in our place. The wage for sin, he pays for all of his people. 
The cross in the world today is one of the most recognized symbols that you will ever see. But it is a far cry from a piece of jewelry that we put on our homes. It was a symbol of a brutal, agonizing death. You know, the early church, they never used crosses because it was, number one, too grisly a reminder, and secondly, too humiliating a reminder of their God. And they didn't want to have to see that and say, that's what Jesus died on. Now, today we wear around like jewelry and wrappers wear it and homeless people spray paint it in the back at Elliman. The, 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 the Jewish Roman historian Josephus called death on a cross despicable. Despicable. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I will show you how as Christians we call this cross good news. Good news. Good news translates as gospel. Jesus died and rose for us. So how is this good news? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 3. I hear you turning, so that's good. I got stuck in Genesis. Where's, okay. First Corinthians 15, starting in verse 3, says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died. Now, if you stop right there, that in itself is not good news. It's like, well, Jesus died. But the theological understanding of that event is good news. This is why Paul uses the word for, to move you from the event to the implication for us. That Christ died For our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. That is why it is good news. It is the only hope we, as a human race, have ever had. This is, in the Old Testament, they call it atonement. Now, in the New Testament, we call this, it's a big word, it's called propitiation. Propitiation. All right, propitiation includes atonement. It has this idea that it expiates, it takes away our sin. But the other side of propitiation is that it makes a relationship right again. It makes you friends again. We can actually have a relationship with God again because Jesus took away our sin and made us righteous before him through his life and death and resurrection. That's propitiation. This is what was made at the cross of Jesus and the resurrection. And people today still trip over the cross because we think we're good enough. We think we can do it. We must grasp the severity of blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And we mourn for our sin and what it meant for God to declare you and I clean in his eyes. We are comforted because sin is now no longer master over us. Jesus is. Hebrews 9.22 says, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. So Jesus dies as our perfect lamb in our place. That is a language of love and restoration and reconciliation and hope. Why would Jesus do this? Paraphrasing John Calvin, he essentially said because the father wanted his kids back. That's why. That's why. Romans 3.25, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 1 John 4.10, and this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Hebrews 2.17, therefore He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We call this substitutionary atonement. He died to pay the penalty for our sin. The wages of sin is death. He goes to the cross not just as our example, but as our substitute. Jesus alone can reconcile a holy God with a sinful people. Again, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. While you're still smoking crack or beating your spouse or self-absorbed or gossiping or ignoring God, while you are poor in spirit, Christ died for you. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Martin Luther calls this the great exchange. My death for his life. My sin for his righteousness. My condemnation for his salvation. My defeat for his victory. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ died for sins once for all, for the righteous, for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. There is nothing more important than the death and the life of Jesus, the cross of Christ and the resurrection, because without Jesus, there is no eternal life, there is no forgiveness of sin, there is no relationship with the good and holy God, and there is no hope for our world. None. We must understand the reason for His death and His life. We understand that we are those who are poor in spirit. That is our condition. What should the result of that condition be? Separation from God forever. That should be the result. But instead, what do we get? We get the kingdom of God. We get grace. We get hope. And we realize that we begin to mourn because of all that we have done to God and all that we thought it was all about us. And we're like, oh, God, I can't believe. And God's like, I'm going to comfort you. Don't worry. I'm going to comfort you. True mourning over sin always leads to comfort. I think it's because of the last two things that Jesus said before he died. The first one, like I said, it is finished. Paid in full. Atonement, propitiation, it's done. Jesus was cursed for us. Again, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. And when it was finished, it was finished. It was done. You don't have to keep trying to crucify yourself. It was done. It was paid for. It's done. And then he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus is reconciled to the Father, and so are we. And so are we. When we mourn, what you can't do is feel sad or have pity for Jesus, because that is condescending and disrespectful, because Jesus says, no one takes my life. In John 10, 18, he says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. So Jesus is not a victim. He's not. He was on a mission to save us. Because blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We've got to look at ourselves and realize Jesus had to die. You and I are so bad that Jesus had to die to bring us back into relationship with God. This is why we're told in Hebrews 12, 2, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning at shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, sometime today, if you don't have your Bible open to there, open to Hebrews 12 and circle the word joy. That's a really important word there because it tells you that Jesus was not a pathetic victim. Jesus, for the joy set before him, he came to glorify God and save his lost children. It is not about how good you are and how many good things you can do. It is about how good he is in saving us. It is all about Jesus. Propitiation for you and I. God really is that good. And when we recognize the depth of our sin, we understand why we need a little bit of comfort. Because it is that bad. And he loves us more than we can ever imagine. And you and I should begin to love him back. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. And I think this illustrates this really well. He just closed it. He's like, ah, dang it. (laughs) Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 39. Uh, This is Jesus. He's hanging on the cross. He is crucified between two thieves. And this is the conversation that takes place between the two thieves and Jesus on this cross. Luke 23, starting in verse 39. It says, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, that's Jesus, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, on the cross, you see the distinction between these two guys and what this really means, this idea of mourning over our sin. One guy mourned for himself. 
Jesus, how dare you let me be up here? Jesus, this is all your fault. Why don't you fix this? Why don't you give me what I want? I want to get off here. And Jesus, boom. And the other guy looks at Jesus and says, you know what? I am sorry for my sin. This is horrible. This is horrible. And that guy is comforted. That guy is saved. See, true mourning sees ourselves for what we are and what we have done. And Jesus for who he is. He is our needed Savior. This is why the Sermon on the Mount goes the way that it goes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's all of us. We're all on the same page. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Why is ours the kingdom of God? Grace. Blessed are those who mourn. Well, why do we mourn? Because we're poor in spirit and we realize it and that we don't deserve this kingdom that God gives it to us and we mourn over our sins so we're comforted. Next week this goes into blessed are the meek. Meek doesn't mean I'm going to stand here and let people beat me up. Meek is humble. We become humble because we realize that we don't have anything to be prideful over. If we're going to boast in anything, we boast in the cross of Christ like Paul says. That's what we boast in. What Jesus has done. What Jesus continues to do in people. He saves People, you and I don't, he does. And so we boast in that because he is good. This is why we talk about communion every week. So people say, why do you do communion every week? Because it's important. It's where you come and you remember that Christ's body was broken for you. And so you break that cracker. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I. And we don't pass it to you. You've got to get up and do it because it's a response to what he has done. And so we respond by getting up and doing it. And, so, and some people don't have to get it. It's, it's a response. Because our God is so good. He loves us. We should love him back. We really should. We love because he first loved us. We bless because he first blessed us. The band's going to come up. And as they do, we invite you guys uh, to take communion. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer for anything, I mean, maybe you're at a, at a spot in your life today. And all of the mourning in your life has all been about yourself. You're like, oh, woe is me, woe is me. Well, you maybe need to get your eyes off yourself and get them onto Jesus because he puts everything into perspective and it all begins to make a little more sense. I think when we understand Jesus' death on the cross and his crucifixion for our sins, it also makes us into a people who can learn how to forgive other people as well because we all of a sudden we realize that, you know, it's not, I don't have to crucify them. I'm angry, I'm mad, how dare they? We don't have to crucify those people because Jesus has already died for those people. And so that enables us to let go of our bitterness and our anger. It doesn't mean reconciliation always takes place. What it means is that we can let go of the bitterness because Jesus died for that as well. There's offering boxes on the side wall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of that worship. Again, we don't pass the plate. It is a response to what he has done. And so every week you have that opportunity to worship him through giving. Now there's some food and stuff in the back. Grab some coffee, grab some cookies or donuts, whatever's left. You should leave some because I was scrounging for cookies last week in the back. I couldn't find any. It was a very sad day. I was mourning, <laughs> and I was not comforted. <laughs> grab something to eat, meet some other people, invite them out to lunch. Uh, maybe uh, sign up to go to a gospel community this week and talk about this mourning and comforting and, and what we truly mourn over and what we truly are comforted by and what that looks like. Because our God is good, and he calls us to live in community with each other and with him. And so we should be a people who do that, who live in those ways. Because it's, it's not that when, when someone mourns, we're like, oh, your sin's worse. You know, we, we need to love on them as well. We nud with them. But we understand that we have first and foremost been saved by a great and holy and good God. And so in the midst of whatever we go through, number one, Jesus is enough, and we can have joy through all those situations because he is good. Why don't you guys pray with me? Father, this morning, 
I ask that we would be a people who understand the depth of your love for us, not in a way that makes us prideful or arrogant, but in a way that is humble, a way that that lives a life that not only understands our great blessings given to us, but blesses those around us as well. That we can be a people who stop hanging on to all the hurt and pain that has been done to us. And we would understand that your death and resurrection pays what people have done to us and what we have done to others. And our entire lives will begin to change when we understand the comfort that you bring the mourning of being poor in spirit and the gift of the kingdom of God. That our great and good Savior would come and die and rise for us. That we would understand the depth of what that means because so often we lose it today. We think it's a nice little saying that Jesus died for my sins and we don't think of the depth of what that actually means of why it had to take place. And I ask that you grab a hold of our hearts And have us understand that so we truly learn how to mourn. So we can truly, on the backside, understand that comfort and that grace given to us today. Have us be a people who understand our poor in spiritness, our mourning, and yet the ultimate gift of the grace of you and your Son. Teach us to live in that and all that we do. We just in your Son's good name. Amen.